Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website at denverchurch.org or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. And if you want to financially support the healing work we are doing as we invest in our community while setting aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching. Good morning, DCC. For those of you whom I have not had the pleasure of meeting yet, my name is Hannah Tom, and I am the spiritual formation and teaching pastor here at DCC. Um, This morning, we're going to be continuing our journey through Luke. Um, If you would, turn in your Bibles to Luke 12. We're going to be going through verses 1 through 12. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner room will be proclaimed from the roofs. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body and after that can do no more, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after your body has been killed has the authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, yet not one of them is forgotten by God? Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid, you are worth more than many sparrows. I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven." When you are brought before the synagogue rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourself or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. If I had to guess, I'm guessing that there was just a twinge of discomfort as I read those words. For me growing up, (laughs) those words elicited decades of anxiety. And yet they're the words of Jesus. Now, as we explore this passage this morning, 
I'm going to propose that maybe Luke and Jesus are not asking the same questions about hell that you and I might be asking. For me growing up, whether I found myself in evangelical circles or whether I found myself in more progressive circles, I can't really remember all that many sermons about hell. When I was in the evangelical church, it felt like there was sort of this collective embarrassment around the idea of hell. I heard lots of sermons about a loving God who was compassionate and forgiving, and it was really hard to reconcile that God with the kind of God who would send someone to a place of eternal conscious torment. And when I found myself in more progressive circles later, there was a keen awareness of the kind of terror that sermons like that put on the lives of countless people. So we just rejected the notion of hell altogether. This morning, I'm also not going to give you a sermon about hell. Not out of avoidance, not out of rejection, but because I don't think that Luke is nearly as concerned with hell as we are. As I started to study this passage, I was reminded of an incident I had a few years ago. I, like many women who find themselves with a call to pastoral ministry, have not had a smooth path to get there. And a few years ago, I found myself working in an evangelical church, graduating from an evangelical seminary, and realizing I may not be that evangelical anymore. I started to discover that the scriptures were actually far more complicated and interesting than the tradition that I had inherited. So I found that I couldn't work in an evangelical church anymore. And as I started looking for a role, I found an opportunity in a non-denominational school to be an assistant chaplain. At the time, I thought, this could be the right opportunity. I'm not teaching. I'm going to be doing some spiritual care work. So maybe for this season of my life, this is the kind of opportunity where I can exist and feel like I'm pursuing my pastoral call, but where I'm not making waves. If you haven't even filled out the application yet, and you're already asking yourself, how am I going to exist in this space and not make waves? You're not the kind of person who can exist in that space without making waves. <laughs> so I apply for the job. <laughs> and I pretty quickly get invited to come interview, which I'm like, fabulous, this is a great sign. Everything is going my way. I then find out that the person who's going to be interviewing me graduated from the exact same seminary as me, which I presume can only help me. The day of my interview comes, and it is, like, perfect, y'all. Like, it is gorgeous, sun is out, wonderful Colorado day. I had enough time to get coffee before my interview, which, if you know me, says a lot. 
And the coffee I ordered was perfect, like the world's best barista made my coffee that morning. And I show up for this interview, and the facility is pristine. It looks like what I imagine Hogwarts to look like, inside and out. And I come to the front desk, and this cheery woman starts to walk me back to my interview. And we're passing by several offices, and I'm marveling at how big and gorgeous this facility is. And we come to the room where I'm going to interview. She opens the door, and it's blank walls, no windows. It's a little bit darker than everywhere else because there is no natural light. And it's painted white, but like a white that's not really sure if it wants to be white or like off yellow. And I've never been interrogated before, <laughs> but I think that this room looked like an interrogation room. Now, to give you a little context, the seminary that I graduated from had recently decided that there was two courses that no longer were required. I did not have to take these courses. The individual who was interviewing me did have to take these courses. So I walk in, he stands up, no names are exchanged, he looks me dead in the face and he says, I saw that you got your MDiv light from Denver Seminary. You know that moment where there's been a miscalculation? Like you're driving down the highway and your exit is 10 feet away, but you're in the middle lane? <laughs> This was that moment. So I sit down, and while this school was non-denominational, let's just say my interviewer was not. He was looking for very particular answers to his questions, and answers that even my most evangelical self could not have given him. So after two and a half hours of being grilled and providing disappointing answer after disappointing answer after disappointing answer, not to mention the disappointment of the fact that I showed up in the body of a woman, my interviewer finally turns to the topic of hell And after asking me several different times in several different ways about who I thought was going to hell, and receiving answers like, I don't know, I'm actually not God, so I don't make those decisions, <laughs> he finally, in exasperation, looks at me and says, what is hell like? <laughs> and I said, I don't know, I've never been there. <laughs> This morning, I might provide you with equally as disappointing answers. I'm not going to lay out a doctrine of hell. I'm not going to lay out a rejection of hell. Because I think what Luke cares far more about here is the history of hell. So I'm going to invite us together to explore the history of hell so we can better understand Jesus' words to his disciples. For starters, the word hell is not in your Bible. 
That word did not originate until about 700 years after the crucifixion. So when you see the word hell in your Bible, there was an interpretive decision by a modern translator to use that word. The words that are in your Bible are Gehenna, which we're going to talk about today because that's the word that Luke uses here. And this is actually the only time in the Gospel of Luke that Luke uses the word Gehenna. The other words are going to be Hades, Sheol, and in one incident in the book of 2 Peter is the word Tartarus, which is actually more of like a prison for angels. So as we look at the text, the other thing that's helpful to note is the concept of afterlife actually didn't begin as a Judeo-Christian idea. The first writings we have on an afterlife actually comes from the Babylonians, Israel's neighbor, around 3000 BCE. In one of these writings that we have, we encounter the goddess Inanna, who is god of the heavens and the earth. And Inanna, through some kind of complicated situation, decides to go visit her sister Ereshkigal in the underworld. And on her way, she is stopped at seven different gates. And in order to pass through each gate, she must give away an article of clothing. And by the time she comes to her sister in the depths of the underworld, she is naked and mad. <laughs> she lunges at her sister, who hangs her on a stake in the underworld. And when she doesn't return, her royal counselors petition the gods to free Inanna. Now, a deal is brokered between the gods and Ereshkigal, and the deal is essentially, you can go back to earth, but you must send a replacement for yourself. So when Inanna gets back to the land of the living, she decides that her husband will be her replacement because he didn't miss her enough in her absence. Maybe there's a note some of the husbands in the room should be taking right now, I don't know. Um, I don't share that story as marital advice, but actually because it tells us a lot about the conception of the afterlife for ancient Near Eastern people. See, there's many themes that are consistent. One of those themes is that to get to the underworld, you would have to take a very long journey to get there. Once you're there, it's not a simple task to come back from the underworld. And as you're reading the text, it also appears that the underworld seems to be kind of a neutral place. There's nothing about this life that sends you to the underworld. In fact, the underworld is the place where everyone goes. We see this as David talks about going to Sheol, which is really the Jewish word for the underworld. So the underworld as a dark, damp, kind of neutral place is the destiny of all humans, no matter how good or bad you are. Now, some of you are probably asking, well, why is the word heaven in my Old Testament text at all if nobody goes there? Well, heaven was thought to be the home of the gods. It was reserved for the gods, and it was there for the gods alone. It wouldn't be until about 200 years before Jesus' birth where the concept of going to heaven as an afterlife experience would come to be. So, 
75% of your Bible, the entire First Testament, has no concept of hell as you and I would understand it today. So, as you're reading your Old Testament text, it becomes very apparent that the people who are following Yahweh, who are following God, are following God not for some destiny in the future after this life. They're following God for the now. They're following God to be blessed now. They're following God to have lots of children now. They're following God to amass wealth. They're following God to have a good life now. And we see this pattern start to emerge throughout the Old Testament. And the pattern goes a little bit like this. Israel is serving God. Everything is going splendidly. Then they rebel. Usually, this rebellion has something to do with serving other gods or oppressing people around them. And a lot of times, those two themes go hand in hand. God will then send them a prophet who will warn them and say, turn back to Yahweh. Israel will continue to rebel. And then the text will tell us they've been handed over to their enemies because of their rebellion. Then, finding themselves in captivity, Israel repents and God sends them a deliverer, usually in the form of a king or a judge. And it's here in one of these patterns of Israel's rebellion that we're introduced to the word Gehenna. Gehenna is actually a Hebrew um, noun. It's a proper place, Gehenom, which means Valley of Hinnom. And this place, this valley, is a prominent feature inside the book of Jeremiah. Now, as we turn to Jeremiah in a second... Jeremiah is going to paint for us a picture of what Israel's rebellion looked like. So the text we're looking at today is going to be Jeremiah 7, 30 through 33. For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. And they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the sons of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no more be called Tophet or the valley of the sons of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury in Tophet because there is no room elsewhere, and the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and none will frighten them away. Sacrificing their own children? I don't think that I can imagine anything worse. When the text talks about Tophet, Archaeologists now consider that children's cemeteries because the practice of child sacrifice was so widely spread in the ancient world. And here we see Israel adopting the practices of those around them in their own worship. The thing about Jeremiah is the pattern isn't the pattern we expect because the people of Israel don't repent. 
and they are overtaken by their enemies. Babylon takes over the people of Israel in 586 BCE. Then Babylon is taken over by the Persians, and Babylon destroys the temple when they take over. The Persians then take over. They allow Israel to rebuild the temple. Then the Persians are going to be taken over by the Greeks, and the Greeks will be taken over by the Romans, who will destroy the temple in 70 CE. See, when Jesus says these words, the temple is standing. When Luke writes these words, the temple is not. I can't help but wonder if Luke is drawing a parallel between the religious leaders of Jeremiah's day and the religious leaders of Jesus' day. And when I think about what the disciples may have been hearing as Jesus is speaking these words to them, when they hear Gehenna, they are reminded of the temple leaders who got it so wrong before. They're reminded of the rebellion of the people of Israel. They're reminded of their own captivity. Another interesting thing happens in this era of time. As Israel finds themselves in captivity, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and then the Romans, we get the rise of what's called apocalyptic literature, which is basically looking at the end times, also sometimes eschatological literature if you're in Jewish or Christian circles. And as I think about this, a people who does not have hope for today, a people who has been in captivity for hundreds of years, has now shifted their expectation from what is happening here and now to the next life. And it's interesting because I think when we read apocalyptic literature, it gives us that twinge of discomfort. But if I was a disciple hearing these words, I would have been comforted by them. Because God sees what's on the inside. God is the one who judges the heart. Jesus' words say everything is going to be made known in the end. Your motivations will not be a secret. And for us, I think about that. If I'm a person like the Pharisees who sits in a seat of power, what is my motivation? Is it to build my own kingdom or is it to build God's? Or if I'm a person like the disciples who feels like they're just piece of this structured system they cannot get out of, is my motivation to build my kingdom or God's? When I left the interview from hell, <laughs> I walked to my car and in the rawness of that moment, I thought to myself, am I even a Christian? I didn't love Jesus less than when I walked in there. My theological convictions had not changed in those three painful hours. But someone who had religious power and authority spoke to me with such self assurance and condescension, and it made me feel small.
made me feel like I didn't matter. Like I had poured my life out to a system that wasn't built for me. It's in those moments that I think Jesus says, I know every hair on your head. Don't worry when you stand up to religious powers. I will give you the words. I judge the heart. You matter to God. That self-assurance just makes me want to burn it all down. Wouldn't it feel good to burn the system down? But then I'm reminded of this. Jesus didn't just comfort his disciples. He warned them. He said, hypocrisy is small. It comes in so tiny, you won't even notice it. And then it expands, takes over. And I remember my own tendency towards hypocrisy. I remember my own tendency to grab for too much power. And there in those moments, I ask myself, am I speaking the message of God? In my moments of power, am I saying to people, you matter to God? Or am I building my own kingdom? Let's pray. God, I ask that you would build in us a humility as we look at systems around us that feel so incredibly broken. God, would you give us the humility to do it your way and not our way? And God, in my moments of power, in the moments when I'm the religious authority, Lord, would you give me your message and not my own? Would I be the person who looks to the vulnerable and says, you matter to God? In a moment, we're going to participate in Eucharist. One of the things I love about being at DCC is the practice of open table Eucharist. What open table means is that everybody is invited to participate. There's no boundaries or barriers about who's allowed to participate in communion. And to me, this is a reminder that we all have a seat at the table. It's an invitation to come forward, to take up space, to be reminded that you matter in the kingdom of God. And also, it's a reminder that we're participating in Eucharist with the people that it's really easy to participate in Eucharist with. And we're also participating in Eucharist with people that it might be a little more of a challenge for us to participate alongside. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. And he took wine and he said, this is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. As you come, 
You can come on these side aisles down the middle and return down the diagonals. The bread is gluten-free. The taller glass is going to have wine. The shorter one is going to have grape juice. And as you're participating in communion today, I want you to be reminded that you matter, and so does the entire kingdom of God. Those who are easy and those who are harder for us to participate alongside. When you're led, please come. Thank you.